I can think of have to do with the men's uh, prayer breakfast coming up a week from this Saturday with uh, our special guest, uh, Rafael Cruz, who will be um, speaking that morning. So be sure that might be a good opportunity to invite someone to uh, come over and be a uh, participate that morning. Also, the 4th of July, uh, we're going to have a cookout here at 4.30 in the afternoon and then Bible class at 6 o'clock p.m., so that's an out, moving things up an hour and a half. That is uh, on Central Daylight Time. So those of you who live stream and are in another time zone or even in this time zone need to make an adjustment to move your, your schedule up an hour and a half. Uh, for that particular night, we didn't think that would be a problem since most people uh, don't have to worry about work on that particular day. Okay, well, before we get started um, this evening in the interest of having a little uh, <clears throat> a little frivolity and laughter because it's always good for the soul, everybody here knows knows me pretty well. And a uh, little background here, one of the uh, I'm going to show you little things from the trip to Israel. And one I found, I always like getting signs. You always find some interesting signs in Israel. Now, the backdrop here is these two signs are from Jericho. And you have to know me pretty well to understand these signs. But uh, these signs are in Jericho, which is in the West Bank. That's in Area A under the Palestinian Authority. And uh, this area right outside of Jericho is extremely desolate. It's like Mojave Desert desolate. And it has a, you know, high peaks there and some mountains. And this is the area where, uh, traditionally is believed that Jesus, uh, was taken into the wilderness by, uh, by Satan for the, uh, uh, temptation, Matthew chapter four. And so not to be outdone, modern day entrepreneurs try to make a buck off of anything and everything that Jesus, Moses, Paul, anybody did. And, uh, so th- I found this particularly appealing. On uh, when I went to Jericho for the first time, <laughs> Mount of Temptation restaurant, and coffee shop, and ice cream bar. I had two Magnum bars that day. I wanted to make sure they succeeded in their temptation. Then, as you drove into to Jericho, you find all kinds of different things. In fact, right after I got back, there was an article talking about how. In the Gaza Strip, which is down south, uh, they, they were smuggling Kentucky fried chicken into the Gaza Strip. Or just they, they had to order from Egypt, and then they were delivering it through the tunnels. And, and, and that was such a hardship. You know, it's too bad they, that, that Hamas just, you know, go join Fatah and go over to the West Bank, and you can have Popeyes. <laughs> Far superior, in my opinion. Uh, no, that is not a pig. That is a chicken. You know, the little chicken with his hat on. Okay. Acts chapter 16. Now that we've had the, gotten the frivolity out of the way, let's uh, get into the word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're sure so very grateful that we can come together to study your word, to, to get answers to life's questions, to understand the significance of our life, that it is not about us, it's not about our experiences, it's not about our feelings, it's about you and your plan, and how we as human beings fit within the overarching plan that you have, a plan that includes volition, a plan that includes uh, and <clears throat> is uh, recognizes that there's been a revolt in eternity past by the angels and that all of human history fits within that broad spectrum. And so, Father, as we study tonight, as we address many different issues that have come up in, in uh, Acts 16, we pray for your wisdom guidance that we can concentrate and understand the things that are taught here, that we might be encouraged because uh, the Holy Spirit who guided, directed, and who uh, empowered the Apostle Paul is the same Holy Spirit who guides and directs and empowers us, though in slightly different ways. We pray this you'll guide and direct our thinking this evening in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to see the gospel go to Europe. 
The gospel goes for the first time to Europe, from crossing the Bosphorus, crossing over, uh, crossing the Aegean Sea, going from what is now Turkey to what is uh, Thrace or uh, northern uh, Greece at that time, uh, Macedonia, and so. We read about this starting in Acts 16.6. Last time we saw the beginning of Acts 16 where Paul and Silas have retraced the steps of Barnabas and Paul uh, on the first missionary journey, and they've revisited Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. They picked up Timothy, who as a Jew had a Gentile father, was not circumcised, and we had to deal with this whole issue of circumcision. And I think that I hope I brought some clarity to, to that issue last time because this is something that has cropped up around the edges of some conversations I've had for probably a couple of years. And I think it helps shed some light on, on some other issues. And that is that the only problem Paul had with, with an insistence upon circumcision was by those who insisted it had a spiritual significance that it somehow contributed to salvation or making a person savable or that it contributed to sanctification. Uh, Just like many other religious rites related to the Mosaic law and, and the Old Testament, those were related to ritual. They weren't related to reality in the sense of somebody's individual spiritual life. And I keep going over this and over this because I find that people get confused over this. If if you are if you were an individual Jew, and you were like let's say David, and you're out with the sheep out in the fields by Bethlehem, and uh, you commit a sin, you don't have to wait until you go to the temple and offer a sin offering to be back in fellowship. The offerings and sacrifices had to do with ritual cleansing, not experiential cleansing. He could confess his sin on the spot, and he would be back in fellowship experientially. But the next time he went to Jerusalem and wanted to worship God at the temple, he would still have to bring a sacrifice for that experiential cleansing so that we have a dichotomy between ritual cleansing and ritual activity and real cleansing, real salvation, which does not take place on the basis of the sacrifices or in the temple. And that's important because throughout Acts, what we're going to see is that the Jews in Jerusalem who become Christians still continue to obey the Mosaic law, but they're not obeying the, while some were obeying the Mosaic law because they thought it added something to faith, the vast majority of them followed the Mosaic law because that was part of their culture, part of their tradition, and in fact, the temple was still right there, and they only knew that form of worship as church-age doctrine was being revealed. And so they still went into the temple. They still went in to uh, – they still brought sacrifices and made vows, but they understood that that didn't add to that salvation. It was uh, – they probably had a historical perspective, much as we do now, I've gone, and some of you have as well participated in a Seder at, at, in a Jewish home. And it's wonderful to go because as a Christian, you, it's, it's historical, it's significant, you don't believe it has any value spiritually whatsoever, but you can have a capacity to understand the significance of everything that was there. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're not doing it to be closer to God, to be saved, or to help out in any of those ways. Paul had no problem insisting that Timothy get circumcised because Timothy was going to be ministering in Jewish communities. He had a, he was known in Jewish communities. It was known his father as a Greek had never uh, permitted him to be circumcised. Greeks even to this day think circumcision is mutilation. And uh, so, so Timothy had never been circumcised. That was known, and that would be an offense in certain Jewish circles and would hinder his ability to minister the gospel. And so Paul said, not an issue, get circumcised. With Titus, who was a Gentile, uh, that wasn't an issue either. He didn't need to be circumcised. It was pure social, cultural uh, 
issues involved there had nothing whatsoever to do with with spirituality. But at the same time, Paul's telling Timothy, "You got to get circumcised so we can go on this this mission." He's turning. He just a month before he or a couple months before he wrote the Galatians and and said that if you insist on being circumcised, then you have to obey the whole law. See, it's a different context. The insistence on being circumcised there was for salvation. So it's real important to understand those distinctions, and we're going to see this a lot more when as we move forward in Acts. So it's imp- I'm preparing you so that when we get into Acts 20, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, Paul, his vow, going to Jerusalem, some of this will make more sense. Uh, than perhaps it does right now. So after their time with um, uh, in Lystra and Derby, they left and headed northwest. And the idea was to go into uh, some area in north, in either uh, western, central, or northern Turkey, in order to take the gospel. So we're told that when they had gone through Phrygia. And the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They were prohibited to in Asia. Now, we'll look at a map in a minute. Asia is the region in the far west of Turkey. And um, Phrygia, Galatia is the area where Lystra and Derby were located. Phrygia is just, up, uh, just northwest of there. And Bithynia was to the north. And so the Holy Spirit... St- stops them, but we don't know how he stopped them. Did he give them direct revelation? Was it because every time they tried to make a right turn, somebody had a donkey cart that was turned over and they just couldn't go down that road anymore? Uh, we don't know, but somehow, and of course, Paul being an apostle, Paul was receptive to uh, direct divine guidance as we are not because revelation has ceased. And, you know, sometimes people say, yeah, revelation ceased, but I kind of feel what God wants me to do. Well, then you don't believe revelation ceased. You got, it's one or the other. It can't be both. Revelation has ceased. And so, uh, but at that time, revelation, the canon had, wasn't complete yet. And Paul as an apostle was still, uh, receptive, was, could still have direct revelation from God as to his direction, but we're not told. So it's wrong to read into the text what is not made clear. And so often people read this, they bring preconceived notions to it and say, well, the Holy Spirit must have spoken to his heart or been that still small voice or something like that. It's not in the text. Don't read stuff in there that isn't there. The Holy Spirit didn't think it was necessary for us to know how he prohibited Paul from going into uh, and preaching the word in Asia. What's interesting, to give you the preview of coming attractions in Acts, Asia is the area where most of the, where all of the, the cities that uh, are the recipients of the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Laodicea, Thyatira, all of those are in Asia. What happens in two years is Paul's going to come back into Asia at Ephesus and establish a school, and he's going to send out his students to take the gospel and establish churches throughout Asia. This is not, uh, this is merely an issue of the Holy Spirit saying, I have another, I got a priority for you. You're going to go to Europe. You're not going to go into Asia yet. You'll get there in another couple of years. So after they'd come to Mycenae, which is another region, we'll look at the map in a minute, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Now, I didn't get that second square enlarged, but you have two different words here. Koluo, which means to hinder or to prevent or to stop. And the other word is E-A-O, E-A-O, all vowels, E-A-O, Epsilon, Alpha, Omega, and that means to permit, to allow, or to pass over. So it has that idea that the Holy Spirit, two different ways to express the fact that the Holy Spirit stopped them from going in that direction. We're then told in verse 8, so passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now here's a map. Here's a map of 
uh, western and cent- what is now western and central Turkey. The dark uh, blue line is the general line of travel. The two red lines indicate where the Holy Spirit blocked the Apostle Paul from going. Uh, so he's established his corridor. Uh, the area where um, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby are located is just off the uh, map down here in the lower right. So as they headed northwest, they went through uh, the area of Galatia is located in this vicinity. As they headed this way, they went through Fr- uh, Phrygia. They were prevented from going into Asia, which was off to their left. They were prevented to go from going to the northeast to Bithynia. And then they arrived in the region of Mycia, and they were really prevented from going anywhere, so they headed for Troas. Troas was named for Troy, ancient Troy, of the Trojan Wars and the Odyssey and the Iliad. But it was built 25 miles uh, south of the ancient site uh, of, of Troy. And from there, God gave Paul uh, direction, specific direction, in a vision at night, one of numerous ways in which God reveals himself to people. It's uh, specific. There, it's, it's not just a general sense of feeling, but it's specific direction. A man appears to him. Some people have said, well, a man appeared to him, but the first convert, once he gets into Greece, is a woman. It's Lydia. In, in, in Philippi. So why does why does a woman appear to him? Because this is just a generalized uh, appearance. It's not indicating a specific individual identity. This uh, man that appears just is a representative of the population in Greece. It's not a specific individual who is uh, a, a part of this vision inviting Paul to come uh, to Macedonia. As you look at this map, a couple of things I want to point out here. Here's Troas, and then as as we this site up here, this is uh, uh, Istanbul, modern Istanbul, ancient uh, Byzantium, Constantinople. Um, uh, this is the I always get this confused, uh, which is which, but I think this is the uh, Dardanelles down here, and this is the Bosphorus up here, and the Dardanelles. Uh, this is the area where. Um, Paul comes to Troas, and then they take a ship. It's about 125 miles to Neapolis, which is the nearest port to Philippi. So it's about a two-day journey, and on the way they uh, passed by, stopped briefly at Samothrace. Nothing significant happened there, probably just a, a quick um, quick pit stop. We're told uh, that um, after he had seen the vision in Acts 16.10, that immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, sought the first ship, concluding, or that was probably a causal participle, because we concluded that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel uh, to them, again, to proclaim the good good news. Now, the picture that I show you here is a picture of the ancient ruins of Troas. They were identified as early as 1791. And in the late 19th century, or late 18th century, there were a large number of ruins, but they've been covered up since then, so not a lot is exposed today. Just a few of the remains of some of the public baths and part of the walls. The rest of it is still under the dirt and remains to be excavated, and no excavations are being conducted today. We know that this same event in Troas by the Apostle Paul in his second epistle, in second, our second epistle to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. And so the way in which that door was opened was through this vision in his, uh, in his sleep at night. Uh, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. So apparently Titus had, he says Titus had joined them at this time, 
but he he wasn't present, so he was a, must have been away from the group for a while. So they uh, this just is a little added insight that as they were they must have been in Troas for a little while, a few days at least. Titus kind of got away from the group. When Paul gets his vision to go, he's ready to go, but he can't find Titus anywhere. Sort of reminds me of some of the trips we've had to Israel, especially Turkey, where we'd be looking around, and as the group leader, I'm trying to make sure everybody's around, and either we would either say, well, where's Pam? And we'd have to be looking for Pam because she would wander off as she's short and hides behind people. Or it was Milton. Milton was the one who really wandered off. Milton would, next thing we'd know, I was, we were at Ephesus, and I'm counting heads, and everybody's there, but I'm missing one. It took me a while. I finally figured out it was Milton because I just talked to him. And next thing I knew, I looked up on the ridge uh, four or 500 yards away, and Milton has managed to find a trail and climb up to this ridge where he could take a couple of, of, of uh, pictures, sort of an aerial shot of the ruins at, at, at Ephesus. So when, when somebody gets away from the group, the leader starts to get a little panicky, uh, waiting for them to get back. And so that's what's, what uh, Paul is expressing here, is he was ready to go, but Titus was AWOL. And finally, apparently, Titus, uh, uh, I'm not even sure if Titus showed up because Titus isn't mentioned uh, for a little while. So Titus may have been uh, dragging along uh, behind them a, a few days before he finally got over to, uh, to Philippi. Here's a map of their destiny. This is the Greek uh, peninsula. Down here in the far south is the uh, Peloponnesus. This was the area of Sparta. This area in the middle is Greece proper, known as Achaia. Uh, it is down here. We'll get to know this fairly well over the coming weeks as we track uh, Paul's journey. And then we go up to and, and, and follow the coastline back to the east, and we, we connect here with this yellow line, which is the Ignatian Way. Uh, named for uh, a notable Roman, and this is the main east-west highway and trade route, and I'll show you some pictures of it as we uh, go along. But this was uh, well-traveled uh, by the Apostle Paul. Those, the road is still present. You can look at the roadbed. Of course, that which whatever they filled it in and smoothed it out with isn't there anymore, so it looks a little bumpy. But <clears throat> nevertheless, it's still there. The Romans knew how to build things to last. And uh, you see that Thessalonica and uh, Philippi and Neapolis are just on that east-west line following the Ignatian Way. And so as the Apostle Paul came up from, um, came up, uh, from uh, Samothrace, he came into the harbor here at Neapolis, uh, which is the main harbor serving uh, Philippi, or Philippi as it's pronounced in English, but the Greeks pronounce it Philippi. And that was a, a wealthy town. Uh, Luke talks about it as being uh, a significant town. It's not significant in size, it's significance in wealth. There was gold mining, a lot of other uh, metals in the area, and uh, so it was a very, very popular area. So we're told that after sailing from uh, Troas, they ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day they came into... Uh, came into uh, Neapolis. Uh, <clears throat> Samothrace was the site of a uh, mystery religion that worshipped the uh, twin gods known as the Kabiri. And so that was their pagan background. It's an island that has, a, it's a very mountainous island, has a 5,577-foot 5, 5, mountain peak called Mount Fingari, uh, from which it was said that Poseidon watched over Troy to the uh, to the east, and so Paul didn't do much. It's the midway point from Troas to Neapolis. Uh, we're not told that uh, they got off the ship or did any evangelism or anything. They just stopped probably briefly for supplies and pressed on until they arrived uh, at uh, at Neapolis. They spent a brief time there before they decided to head on to. Um, to uh, Philippi, which was called by Paul, a, I mean by Luke, a leading city. 
and you see a little bit of the harbor there uh, in the background. Here's another shot of the of the harbor there today. And they were left from there, according to verse 12, and went on the Ignatian Way, and that's the Ignatian Way as it exists today. To, and they went from there to Philippi, which is the foremost or the leading city of that part of Macedonia. So it was because of its wealth, because of its business, because of its commerce, and again, it's located right on this major east-west uh, trade route. And so Paul picks significant cities. And again, uh, what we're going to learn about uh, Philippi is it is also a Roman uh, colony. And so when they go there, they're going to uh, have a significant uh, audience of people. And this was Paul's strategy, or seems to be, that he goes to these significant towns that are on trade routes, and once he establishes a congregation there, then those congregations are going to send out missionaries to the surrounding area and and start churches and plant and spread the gospel uh, around the area. And <clears throat> this is a uh, panoramic shot taken from the Acropolis, uh, this in the panoramic shot. This is a, an aerial shot taken from the Acropolis. That's the high point. Every city has a high point, uh, which is what Acropolis means, which is where they would build a temple to the gods. There's a, a one view that uh, what one of the reasons they did this in their pagan thinking was to uh, be high enough so that the gods uh, would not flood them out again. Uh, that was a very an- ancient view. Uh, the city of uh, uh, Philippi was founded in uh, 360 B.C. by an Athenian politician by the name of uh, Callistratus who brought a group of Thacians there to, find the, to found the village of uh, Crinides. And these colonies from Thassos, which was another area of Greece, were very much aware of the metals, the agricultural value of the land, and the resources there, and were exploiting those and developing a, quite a bit of wealth there. They also had nearby springs to provide water, and the Acropolis provided them with a natural fortification. This is the uh, same area uh, where uh, where Augustus and, and Mark Antony fought Brutus and Cassius, uh, which led to the collapse, the final collapse of the Roman Republic and the birth of the, uh, the birth of the Roman Empire. And this was the field where they, uh, where they fought. This gives you a little more of a panorama of the entire area. This is the Acropolis here on the left and just on the other side down below is where the ruins of ancient, uh, Philippi, uh, Philippi are located. Here we have it on this picture taken. Uh, no, it's not that picture. Let me go back one. There we go. This this is the Acropolis here from which his picture is taken. Just down to the right, blocked by this little peak here, is where the uh, the, the uh, archaeological dig is located. This is the modern city of Philippi located there. So here you get a nice panorama, beautiful area. And, of course, with that wide-open plain, that was a great area for uh, the battle to take place. We're told of a couple of basic incidences, three, three as a matter of fact, in, in this uh, section of, of uh, Acts dealing with their visit. The first has to do with the conversion of Lydia. The second has to do with the casting out the demon from the... Uh, slave girl who has a, a, a python spirit or spirit of uh, Puthanas, which is uh, accurately translated as spirit of divination. And then after the riot occurs as a result of that and some other things, Paul and, and uh, Silas are thrown in jail. And this is when the, uh, there's an earthquake, God rescues them, and the Philippian jailer asks the famous question, what must I do to be saved? And they respond by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Those are the three events that occur here in Philippi. Well, as they approached, there are two rivers that are located in, um, in Philippi. There's the Gangetes River, 
which is also known as the Angetes River, and then there's a smaller stream or creek or creek, depending what part of Texas you're from, called the Crinides. And that's the one that is depicted here in the slide. You can see this is a picture taken in the winter. You can see the tree line that goes along the river. Off to the right here, you have an octagonal uh, church located. This is the baptismal site, or to uh, remember, memorialize the baptismal site of Lydia. And this is the traditional location. We don't know where the exact location was, but this is a traditional location of the uh, baptism of, of Lydia. We're told that on a Sabbath day, so there's, Paul is still operating on his principle to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, on a Sabbath day, there would be expected to have a group of Jews that would gather together for the reading of Torah and for prayer. In a Jewish community, there have to be ten men in order to have what they call a minion. You have to have a minion in order to be able to form a synagogue. There has to be a minimum of ten, and so there weren't ten men, so there was not uh, apparently a synagogue in Philippi. And so these God-fearing women were, which is the same term that was used to describe Cornelius. They have not completely become complete uh, proselytes in Judaism, but they are, they have come to study the Torah. They're studying the Old Testament. They're seeking the truth from God. But I, I'm not sure that we would say that they were regenerate even in an Old Testament sense because they are still seeking the truth. So there, Paul on a Sabbath day decides the best place to go is, is outside the city, which is where he would expect a group of Jews, if there wasn't a synagogue, where he would expect a group of Jews to meet for prayer, and he is not disappointed. So there was a group of women who met by the riverside, and they were engaged in prayer, and so they sat down and spoke to the women who met there in verse 13. The picture on this slide is a picture of the uh, Trinity's River, its location there, which is uh, the traditional site. That, uh, they have. When you travel through the Bible lands, you'll often find that every place where they have a traditional site where Paul did something, Jesus did something, or one of the other apostles did something, there's a Greek Orthodox Church or Syrian Orthodox Church or Armenian Orthodox Church or a Syrian Orthodox Church or Roman Catholic Church built on the spot. And there are a lot of Protestants who have a problem with that. But see, we live in such a world that if the Protestant, I mean, that if the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox hadn't staked that territory out and built a church there a thousand years ago, there'd be a holiday in there now. <laughs> and a McDonald's. And you wouldn't have a clue what, where, where these sites were, so that kind of thing is, is a little bit off-putting, but it does at least, because of that, a lot of these sites are actually owned by the Orthodox Church. In fact, I have recently read, and I had it confirmed when I was in Israel, and I don't know what the ultimate thing is going to be, but the whole uh, government area of Jerusalem is allegedly that under a 100-year lease from the... Um, for all their, the land for where all the government buildings are built, the Knesset and the Israel Museum and all of that area in Jerusalem, that all that land is actually owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, and that lease is supposed to be up in another uh, 10 or 15 years. So I don't know. But we're glad that they got a lot of that land because it's preserved it. And in a lot of places where it's not a, a, a ta- where a big city like Jerusalem hasn't grown up, it's preserved the rural uh, atmosphere of the of the area, so you get some sense of what the terrain uh, what the terrain was like. Now, in verse fourteen, we're told that there was a certain woman singled out in this group named Lydia, who heard Paul and Silas talking about Jesus as the Messiah. She was a seller of purple cloth. Uh, this means that she had a business. Purple cloth was a, a, a rare and expensive cloth. It's made from a shellfish called the murex that would be crushed, and then the, the, um, that would be used to form the purple dye of the fabric. This was especially rare. Uh, it was very expensive because it took a lot of sh- these murex shellfish 
to make a very much dye, which made it, which is what made it expensive. And this was what was generally worn for royal purple, uh, in the ancient world. And she was, um, uh, she's actually from Thyatira, which is over in uh, what then was the province of Asia across the Aegean Sea back in what we would call uh, Turkey. So she's traveling. She's a businesswoman. She's traveling. She's, uh, uh, we don't know if she was there in uh, Philippi for a somewhat lengthy period of time or just a short period of time, but we know that's not her uh, original home. And she's there for commerce because Philippi is wealthy. It's got gold mines, silver mines, uh, other metallic mines. It's right on the trade routes. This is a place where, where money can be made. And she is a worshiper of God. So we read that she, um, she worshiped God. The word here for worshiping God is a word that me, that is in the Greek. It's sebo, S-E-B-O. And this is where we get the word eusebia, which is a word I often translate it spiritual, uh, spiritual life. Uh, the root has to do with one's relationship to God, their, their reverence or their worship to God, and then different prefixes and suffixes give it uh, different nuances. So that it's not the word uh, proskuneo, which means to bow down and worship, which emphasizes submission. This is a word that emphasizes uh, reverence for God. And then we're told that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things or to listen to the things spoken by Paul. Now, what's going on here? A couple of things I want to go back and review. A while back, we talked about the, the, the Calvinistic doctrine of efficacious grace. And if that is the mentality that one has, uh, that's how you're sort of predisposed to handle passages like that, then you're going to look at that and say, oh, well, see, she's elect, and God, because she's elect, opens up her heart so she can understand the gospel. I think it, in talking with the Calvinists, I think it's interesting that for many Calvinists, regeneration precedes faith, they would also be tempted to see that opening of her heart as regeneration. But I would point out that opening the heart is not regeneration. It just simply means uh, pre- preparing the mind uh, because she has to hear the gospel. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's not this, I don't think it fits efficacious grace. So I want to look at two passages uh, to help us always think through this topic. Uh, as we do this, the so first passage is in Acts chapter, I mean, uh, excuse me, the Gospel of John, John chapter uh, 17. Gospel of John chapter 17. I'm going to make you turn in your Bibles because I didn't put a slide for this. Every now and then you have to learn where the books of the Bible, turn the pages, underline the verses. You know, I hate it when I use, I'm getting where I underline everything electronically, and then when I open my Bible, I go, well, wait a minute, I made a lot of notes here, but that's not here. Uh, John chapter 17. Uh, Jesus is talking about God the Holy Spirit. And I've just, or is that John 16? That may be what my problem is. The work of the Holy Spirit, John 16. Uh John 16, I had the wrong chapter. Uh, Jesus is talking, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So this is talking about the fact that Jesus is going to be sending the Holy Spirit in the what we'll call the first advent of the Holy Spirit. When he has come, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? Verse 8, he will convict the world of sin. Now, that word for convict is elenko in the Greek, E-L-E-N-C-H-O, E-L-E-N-C-H-O, and it means to make a indisputable, irrefutable case for something. So the Holy Spirit is going to be the one, not you, not I. We can do the best we can, but trust me, with a lot of folks, we can't close the deal. Uh, 
Only the Holy Spirit can close the deal. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to take from what we say because we're going to say a lot of stuff that's not relevant. In fact, if you listen to the way most people present the gospel, they don't give the kind of content that the Holy Spirit needs in reference to this verse. What the Holy Spirit is going to do is convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Three things. He's not going to tell them that they need to invite Jesus into their heart. He's not going to make them feel anything. He's going to make a rational case. That word elenco is a courtroom term for a prosecutor or defense attorney, a lawyer who makes a, 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 a blockbuster case, an irrefutable case for something. And that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Now, what he's going to use to do that with is going to be what you and I communicate when we give the gospel to somebody. And there are a lot of folks who don't give the Holy Spirit enough to work with, and because he's omnipotent, he's able to get the point across anyway. But we should recognize that this is what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in an evangelistic thing. Now, who's he convicting? Is he convicting believers? No, he's convicting the world. That means he is, and, and he's not, it's not a selective concept here, not some of the world or part of the world. He will convict the world, the inhabited world, the same world that God loved in such a way that he sent his only begotten son, and he uses the word to do it. He will convict the world first of sin. Now, there are some folks, and I understand what the issue is here, but there are some folks who who get a little upset if you think that uh, in, in communicating the gospel, you need to talk about sin. There are two ways to talk about sin when, when communicating the gospel, a right way and a wrong way. The wrong way is to make sin the issue. You know what you did? You know, you're a liar, you're a homosexual, you're an adulterer, you're uh, a murderer, or you're a gossiper. You you have to feel sorry for your sin. You have to repent of your sin. That's the wrong way. In a gospel presentation, the focus isn't on what the person has done as a sinner because their condemnation, as we've studied so many times, is not because of their personal sin. Their condemnation is because of Adam's original sin. Adam's sin is what was transmitted to us. We received the imputation of Adam's original sin. That's the foundation of our condemnation. But sin means we're spiritually dead. And until a person recognizes that they're lost, they're not going to realize they need to be saved. They have to understand their condition of being spiritually dead, and that brings sin into the topic. But you're not bringing it into the topic to condemn them for their personal sin. You're, you're bringing it in so they understand that we're all in a condition of spiritual death, and therefore we have to uh, have someone else save us. Unless a person recognizes that, that they've already gone under the water two times and the third time means they're drowned, um, they're not going to grab for that life preserver if they think they're still in arrogance going to be able to survive even though they don't know how to swim. You have to recognize that you're lost and in total desperate need of salvation before you're going to say, yeah, I want to trust in Christ as Savior. But that's that's the limited role of presenting sin uh, in the gospel. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit's going to do is convict the world of sin, that we are incapable of saving ourselves because we're under condemnation. Second, he's going to convict the world of righteousness. The contrast there is between those two elements. The opposite of sin is righteousness, that which conforms to the righteous standard of God. And so in, in the Holy Spirit's ministry, he's going to convict the unbeliever that they're spiritually dead and that the only way to have spiritual life is to have righteousness. And the third thing is he's going to convict them is judgment, that sin, the payment, the, the sin penalty has been paid. <clears throat> John goes on to explain this in verses 9 and 10 of sin because they do not believe in me. See, it's the focus there is not on personal sin. It is on the fact that they haven't done the one thing necessary to be saved, which is to believe. 
as Paul says later on, anything apart from faith is sin. So they are, they haven't believed in Christ, so therefore they're still spiritually dead. In verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now what that re- refers to is the ascension. Christ is able to ascend to the Father because he has completed the payment for sin on the cross. And it is Christ's righteousness uh, that is imputed to us for justification. During the time on the cross, our sin, our unrighteousness, was imputed to him so that he paid that penalty. And that leads to the third uh, aspect of the judgment in verse, uh, of, of, of the Holy Spirit's conviction, verse 11, of judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged. Perfect tense verb, it's completed in the past at the cross, the ruler of this world, another title uh, for Satan. And so what we see here is that the one who convicts, convinces somebody of the need for salvation makes that irrefutable, indisputable case, is the Holy Spirit. But the unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit in any way, shape, or form. The unbeliever is spiritually dead, which refers to the fact that that immaterial component of his nature that's, that enabled the soul to have a relationship with God is not present. This is the second passage I want to look at, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First uh, Corinthians chapter two, and we're going to look at verse fourteen. First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen states: "The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him." So, what we a couple of things we have to define here: what is a natural man? Secondly, what are the things? And what does it mean that they're, they're foolish? Because it goes on to say, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And we can form an entire anthropology, biblical anthropology, which is what does the Bible say is the makeup of man out of this passage. It actually begins back in verse 9. We've gone through this before. I've gone through it in a lot of detail, so I'm just going to hit the high points. The high points are that in understanding what it means when it refers to the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 9 is a paraphrase from two Old Testament passages out of Isaiah. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. That means that, that whatever Paul's talking about here in terms of these things that we'll see in the last stanza here, that that's information that can't be they can't be gained through eyesight or hearing. In other words, empirical data doesn't get you the things of God. Neither have they entered into the heart of man. That's man's own autonomous thinking ability, uh, which we call in philosophy rationalism, the idea that man can, on the basis of logic and reason alone, uh, come to understand everything in the universe eventually. Truth comes through reason or truth comes from experience. But in contrast to experience and reason, and the last line there, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What are these things? That's defined in the next verse, verse 10. But God has revealed the, um, uh, your English translation probably has them in an italics, but it's correctly supplied because the object's just left out, but it's assumed to be clear from from the previous line. God has revealed them to us through his Holy Spirit. What has he revealed through the Holy Spirit? He's revealed the content of, of the Bible, the content of revelation. He goes on to say the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. That's related to the thinking of God. For, and then verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him, even so no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Here the things of God goes back to the content of biblical revelation. Now all through here, when you look at this word things, which is a neuter plural in the Greek, it all goes back to the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's the word of God in context. What cannot be learned from uh, rationalism or empiricism, but is revealed objectively through the scriptures, uh, through God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, verse 14 says the natural man does not receive these things. The natural man is called the natural man. The Greek word is sukikos from the, from the uh, noun suke, which means soul. And it's given an ending, which says that it's, it's talking about a certain kind of man, an adjectival ending. So it is a soulish man. The man, but what he's lacking is supplied in context, and that is something that is defined here as also spirit. Now that word spirit, Numa can mean a lot of different things. In fact, I've gone through this passage, and the word Numa has several different meanings in this passage, and you really have to take a lot of time to work through it to make sure you've got each one nailed. It talks about the Holy Spirit, talks about wind, talks about reason, talks about thinking, attitude. All of these are different meanings for the word Numa. So when it's used here, it indicates this component of man's immaterial makeup that enables his soul, which is made up of his self-consciousness, his mentality, his conscience, his volition, enable those, those facets of his soul to relate to God. When Adam sinned and became spiritually dead, he lost that that component. He died. It, it, it disappeared. It was no longer functional so that his self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience became independent of God. And it wasn't until he was regenerate and that uh, there was something born again, something is positively given, which is the human spirit, that in, once again enabled him to to think in relation to God, to choose in relation to God, to have values of right and wrong in relation to God in terms of his conscience, and to focus on that element of his soul that was related to God, God consciousness rather than just self-consciousness. And so what we see here is the natural man, the unbeliever, can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. He can't understand the gospel. Well, when we put that together with John 16, what we realize is the only way the unbeliever can come to understand the things of the Spirit of God is if God the Holy Spirit functions like a human spirit to open up the mind of the of the individual with positive volition so that they are enabled to understand the gospel. But he, the Holy Spirit doesn't believe it for them. The Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't uh, regenerate them apart from faith. They have to understand the gospel first, but it's the Holy Spirit who acts as the one who makes it clear. Now, somebody may say, well, that's clear, but I reject it. And then they continue to be spiritually dead. Another person may say, wow, that's wonderful. I mean, I've had people explain to me, you know, exactly what I've told them. They have a perfect understanding of the gospel. They just don't want to believe it. I've talked, I've got some friends who are unbelievers who can probably witness to somebody and tell the gospel to unbelievers as clearly as anybody in this room. But they're not saved. They don't believe it. But they've heard it so much that they can articulate it so clearly that you'd be surprised. We have a guide that I use whenever I go to Israel, uh, Amos Garbatsky, and it usually takes me the first five or six days of a trip to convince everybody on the Israel trip that he's not saved. Because he's been guiding evangelical groups for the last 35 or 40 years, and it's not in a deceptive way, but he knows what Christians want to hear. And his his job as a guide is not to change their mind or straighten them out or anything else, but to help them understand Israel in such a way that it informs their faith. It doesn't have anything to do with what he believes or doesn't believe. And because uh, uh, that he is he's skilled at it, uh, he's not going to step on anybody's toes. I had a guide with a trip last year. He was more concerned about telling everybody how he really understood things better than these religious people did, and he was constantly putting in little little barbs against religious Jews or against Christians or Bible believers or whatever, and that's just not what you want. But But there are unbelievers who understand the gospel. God the Holy Spirit's made it clear to them. They've just rejected it. So that's what's going on when we read that, uh, the Lord opened up her heart. Her, the heart is the thinking part of the soul. Uh, it's another a synonym for the for the mentality of the soul in many cases. So she could uh, understand, and her response with her volition is that she's going to heed or respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ uh, for salvation. 
Verse 15, we read, and when she and her household were baptized, so once again we see the Apostle Paul baptizing. Right away, he's not waiting, he's not giving it time, he is baptizing. Uh, either he or Silas would be the ones baptizing, but Paul is supervising if he's not the one directly baptizing. Uh, but it's immediate. He's not saying, you know, you're a Gentile, we're in Europe. Mm. You know, that's a view from hyper-dispensationalism, that baptism was only for an early stage of the church and was limited only uh, because of, it had a, a certain nuance among Jews, and so uh, that's why it was significant. They're Gentiles, and uh, she's being baptized. We'll see that Paul even baptizes by the time we get to chapter 19. He's baptizing the uh, disciples of John the Baptist. And they were probably Old Testament believers, but they hadn't heard yet that Jesus the Messiah had come. And they've been baptized by John. And Paul's first question after they, uh, after they believe is, uh, what baptism were you baptized with? And they said, John, they said, well, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so immediately they were baptized in the name of Jesus. So we see the emphasis that's placed here uh, on baptism. And notice how Luke doesn't beat anybody over the head with it. He just states it as this is the normal course of events for someone after they're saved. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she immediately responds in hospitality, opens up her house for Paul and Silas to come and stay, and so she uh, persuaded them. I think this is also a great verse. There's a little controversy that's come up among some in the Free Grace camp that belief, uh, pistuo, which etymologically derives from the same root as patho, the word for persuade, that they really mean the same thing. The faith is just being persuaded. Faith is more than being persuaded. Uh, when we read here, so she persuaded us, you can't read that, so she believed us, or she believed in us, it, she, or we believed in her. You know, belief is something that comes... Uh, subsequent to uh, persuasion. Persuasion is when you're presented with facts and you exercise your volition and you say, oh, I'm going to be persuaded. That convinces me. Then you believe. But you can just be stubborn and, and not ever allow yourself to be persuaded, no matter how great the facts are. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind's made up. I'm never going to be convinced. There's a lot of people uh, like that. And now we come to verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now this is one of several key passages in the New Testament related to uh, demon possession. And so we need to look at it somewhat, uh, somewhat briefly. Uh, the word here, now it happened, just comes about in the normal course of events as they're going through the, uh, the forum there, the open marketplace in, in, uh, Philippi, that there was a slave girl owned by masters and they were, she was making a lot of money for them as she would tell people's fortunes. Now, we're not sure how she did that, if she used tarot cards, if she used, uh, some other means of divination, whether it was uh, reading the liver of chickens or uh, casting lots or using uh, using uh, some other means of, of uh, fortune telling. It's just that she had uh, this skill at telling the future. Now, there are, just because somebody, I want to make this point, just because somebody's involved in certain activities doesn't mean they're necessarily uh, demon-possessed. Uh, fortune-telling, astrology, um, you know, playing with Ouija boards, a lot of these different activities may, may open a person up to the demonic, but if you're an unbeliever and you're operating on carnality, you're under demon influence. That's the same thing. Uh, and, that, and it's very important to understand that difference between demon influence and demon possession. Demon influence just simply describes the fact that a person's thought systems are 
uh, affected and directed by the uh, values and ideas of demons. And demons have the same value and ideas as Satan. What is Satan's primary orientation? Arrogance. The five I wills, the fall of Satan in, in Isaiah chapter 14. The five I will. So the basic orientation is arrogance. Arrogance is a characteristic of Satan's thinking. It's a characteristic of demons thinking. It's a characteristic of a lot of human beings thinking. When you're operating on arrogance, that's a form of demon influence. Okay? So we get in this idea that if it's demonic, it's going to, you know, all of a sudden you hear the Twilight Zone music and everybody gets real scared. The lights kind of flicker and you see, you know, ghostly things sort of drift through the atmosphere. Uh, that's not necessary. That, that's one of Satan's great deceptions is to get us to think that somehow that and that alone is demon influence. But anybody operating on human viewpoint, human viewpoint is just another way of talking about satanic viewpoint or demonic viewpoint. It's all just cosmic thinking. And it, to the degree that any of us are thinking the way of the world system, then we're operating on demon influence. So uh, years ago I was teaching at a conference in, on demonism, and somebody asked me afterwards. It was back probably about 12 or 13 years ago when the Harry Potter books were really coming out strong. And there were a lot of Christians who just thought it was the most horrible thing in the world to have a Christian child read the Harry Potter books. And somebody asked me uh, what I thought about it, expecting me to condemn the Harry Potter books. And I said, I, I, I said, I know what you want, but I'm not going to do it. And the reason is, is because there are a lot of good movies that are nice stories that are filled with an emphasis on human autonomy and that man can bring world peace and man can do good things. You look at Pollyanna. Pollyanna is a terrible, terrible story. But yet you probably think that's a good little Walt Disney movie for your kids to go to, but it's more demonic than Harry Potter. I thought I was going to get run out of town on a rail. But there's there's a hundred different examples you can use of, of many movies. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I love It's a Wonderful Life. I watch that every year. But that is human viewpoint bilge. It really is. There's no mention of anything that's divine viewpoint in that movie. But it's a nice little feel-good movie. But there's nothing there that has any spiritual significance or spiritual value. It's pure human viewpoint or de- demonic viewpoint bilge. And it's de- demonic influence. Now, why is that better than, than something like Harry Potter? This is just uh, uh, another form of, of, of fantasy. It's not r- real magic. It's not going to bring, it's, it's, you know, the, the stuff like uh, Pollyanna and It's a Wonderful Life are going to have more damage on uh, kids because they don't realize the, the evil they're sucking in than something that's more overt that's talking about magic and spells and hocus-pocus and things like that. So we have to be careful to understand what demon demon influence is. And to some degree or another, in one sense, we're all demon influenced to the degree that we operate on cosmic thinking. Now, demon possession is something else. Demon possession is when a demon takes up residence inside the, 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 the body of somebody and controls them from within. Now, the, the, the word possess is word, we'll, I'll cover this again next time, but we get into this passage and we see this word possess. There's no equivalent word to possess in the, in the Greek. There is not a single single word anywhere in the Greek New Testament or Hebrew Old Testament that can conceivably translated, be conceivably translated as possess. What's the primary meaning that you think of when you think of possession? Ownership. Ownership is one meaning to possession. Another word for, another meaning for possession is to be indwelt. But Satan doesn't own even the people that he possesses. That our, our demons don't own the person that they, they possess. That is a false concept. So possession is really a poor English word to use in translation because a lot of people, and I had a conversation with someone, and I can't re- even remember who it was now, recently, I think somebody in this congregation, 
who thought that that possession had to do with ownership. And it, possession, does, the word in the Greek doesn't have anything to do with ownership. It has to do with an indwelling uh, spirit. And so that's what happens here. She Literally the phrase is she has a spirit. And that's used in parallelism with some other phrases, and we'll start with that next time. We'll come back and get into an important study on demonism, demon possession, demon influence, uh, casting out demons, exorcism, and it's too bad next week isn't October 31st. (laughs) Halloween in June. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to recognize that the real power... Is in the gospel itself, and it's God the Holy Spirit who makes the gospel clear to people. That we have a wonderful privilege of participating in that process, but we don't need to beat ourselves up into thinking that we just aren't good enough, we aren't smart enough, we aren't articulate enough to get the gospel across. Because you use us, and we just need to be faithful in doing the best we can and constantly working to improve that. But ultimately, it's God the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's God the Holy Spirit who makes the gospel clear, but it's ultimately up to the individual volition of each individual to respond to the gospel or not. We're thankful that we can come to understand these things and uh, be encouraged because as we study the Apostle Paul and the impact the gospel had at his time, we know that the gospel can have the same impact now, that it's the same message and the same gospel and the same Holy Spirit working today as worked in the early church. Uh, what we need to do is be faithful in proclaiming that message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.